exalting the Word of God. Psalm 119. We are involved in a series of lessons on this beautiful psalm that truly does exalt the Word of God. There's no better way to summarize, I don't believe, what this psalm is about than to say it is a psalm that truly exalts the Word of God in every line and every phrase of every verse. The longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, and each verse exalting the Word of God as only inspiration can do. And from it we may learn so much and glean so much in terms of our own appreciation and how deep and lasting, continual that appreciation for the Word of God should be, and that we should spend much time in the pages of God's Word. We've mentioned before that this is an acrostic psalm with uh, 22 paragraphs of eight verses each. 22 letters comprise the Hebrew alphabet, and each one of these paragraphs of eight verses represents one of those letters, and each verse within that paragraph begins with that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it is an acrostic psalm, perhaps uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of memorization and making that uh, easier to do. We simply do not know. But what we do know is that it is a psalm with which we should spend a great deal of time, and that when we do, we come away from its study time and time again with a much deeper and fuller appreciation for all of the Word of God. Tonight we look at verses 113 through 120. In this uh, paragraph, the Hebrew uh, uh, letter of the alphabet corresponds to our letter S in the English uh, alphabet. And within these eight verses where we are tonight, 113 through 120, we have presented before us really a number of contrasts. We see, on the one hand, the hatred of wrong versus the love for right. We see hope, on the one hand, contrasted with no hope on the other. We see God's hatred for uh, the wicked versus uh, His appreciation and blessing for those who are righteous. The psalmist begins in verse 113 of this section with this statement. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Is it wrong to to hate, period? No. I don't believe the psalmist was wrong when when he said, I hate the double-minded. He's not saying that he he hates the, the, the soul or the spirit, but he hates the conduct of those who are double-minded. But by way of contrast, and here's the first of those contrasts we mentioned that comprise these eight verses. On the other hand, by way of contrast, I love your law. God does have a hatred for sin. And we need to appreciate and actually not only appreciate but share that hatred. We hate every false way as the psalmist elsewhere expresses. But we don't hate the sinner. We hate the double-minded in the sense of hating the attitude of the double-minded. Brother Robert Taylor, in his comments on this verse, said one who um, conducted a surface reading of this particular verse said, double-minded, that must be a doubly smart individual. 
He has two brains. <laughs> no, it's just the opposite, isn't it? Uh, a surface reading might cause someone to come away thinking double-minded is a compliment, but it is in no way a compliment. It is a, a condemnation. And it is very similar to the condemnation that James gives us. You remember in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, in that epistle, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But then he adds, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Then he goes on, For uh, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why, James? Here it is. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so the double-mindedness that James speaks of and that the psalmist here writes about is a wavering. It is, uh, it is an instability of thought and action that God does not approve, nor should we approve. And the contrast that is drawn in this verse reminds us of something very important, something the world in which we live tonight needs to be reminded of, and that is there is a specific standard, a specific rule, a specific law that is not fluid, that does not change with the times, nor does it change with our whims and our desires. It is pure and it is sure. It is steadfast. Now we recognize that the law to which the psalmist uh, refers here was the law of Moses. We no longer live under that law. We live under the perfect law of liberty, the law of Christ, the New Testament. But the principle has not changed, nor will it ever change. That when God specifies, gives a law, that law is sure and steadfast. In fact, Peter writes in a passage we studied not long ago, we have the more sure word of prophecy. We have that prophecy confirmed. We bask, as we have said oftentimes, in the sunlight age, if you will. We bask on this side of the cross in the sunlight of God's love and God's grace and God's manifestation of His love for us in the giving of His only begotten Son and through His Son a law that has been given which we should love above all else. It is a law about which we should not waver. It is a law that we have no right to change. It is a law that we simply should determine that we're going to comply with and that we're going to encourage others to comply with. And in so doing, we must love what God loves and we must hate what He hates. And what the psalmist depicts here is the double-minded man who tells us that basically you cannot know the truth, you cannot really know what a passage says or what the Bible teaches about this subject or that, but that it is simply what it means to you and what it means to me, and you can have your interpretation and I can have mine, and if mine changes with the times or circumstances, that's fine. If yours changes, that's fine. We will simply love one another and God will be happy. No, that's double-mindedness. That's wishy-washiness, if you will. That's the kind of attitude that God has no toleration for because He has given us His specific word. I love your law. And oh, how thankful we ought to be that we have that law. Now, in verse 114, 
He says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. You are my hiding place and my shield. And in the singing prior to worship tonight, I said I wanted to lead a song that I was going to refer to in the lesson to remind us of the great old hymn, Hide me, O my Savior, hide me. Hide me, O my Savior, hide me. How long have we been singing that song? Probably in the Lord's Church before, long before I was born, uh, that song was being sung, and it still is. A great old hymn, Hide me, O my Savior, hide me. You're my hiding place. You know, there's something that is very secure and comforting about knowing we have a hiding place, as it were, knowing that we have a haven of rest, knowing that there's a place where we can feel comfortable, where we can feel secure. You know, your home should be a place like that. And uh, if something happens to change the comfort and the security that you ought to feel at home, that's very disturbing, isn't it? You know, if you have a leaky roof, if you have a leaky roof, that's disturbing to me. Uh, because my home shouldn't, my house shouldn't leak. <laughs> I should be able to be safe and dry in my house. And so if my roof starts to leak, there's a feeling of uncertainty and unsettledness that comes over me there. I mean, it's not so disturbing that it's, you know, alarming, but no one likes a leaky roof. In other words, we like to know that everything is going to function, hopefully. It doesn't always function that way, and we do have to deal with adversities that come. But we do appreciate the security that home represents, that family represents to us, that those upon whom we can rely constantly represent to us. We know we can depend upon them. But humanity is humanity. And many times humanity will let us down because humanity is human. But God never will. God never will. Thus the psalmist could say, you are my hiding place. You are the, the ultimate hiding place. You are the one where there is always security in you, where there's never a leaky roof, so to speak, where there's never a change in your promises, never a change in the assurances that you have given me that you will never leave me nor forsake me, because I can rely upon that. You are my hiding place. There's another psalm in Psalm 84, verse 11, that is very reassuring in this respect as well, a similar thought where the psalmist there writes, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, a sun, light, and a shield, protection. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Isn't that a wonderful reassurance that for those who walk uprightly, no good thing will he withhold? As we've said, doesn't mean we won't have adversity, we won't have trial, but all the spiritual blessings are ours to enjoy through Jesus Christ our Lord if we are in Christ and walking uprightly. We have grace on the road to glory, ultimately to that glorious home. And as we make that journey toward the ultimate glory of heaven, the Lord God is a sun to give us light and a shield to protect us. Ephesians 6 comes to mind, doesn't it? The shield of faith, the whole armor of God is described by the Apostle Paul in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, where he includes the, the shield of faith along with the sword of the Spirit. 
And when we think of the glory that awaits those who have that hope through the word that God has given us, we think about Colossians 1.27, where Paul there wrote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I hope in your word, the psalmist says. Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How is Christ in us to produce that hope of ultimate glory? He's in us through what? His word. To the end that Christ may dwell in your hearts by what? Paul writes in the Ephesian letter. Faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. Romans 10, 17. And so Christ in you, the hope of glory, is equivalent to the psalmist expression here. The hope that he has in your word. Because that's how Christ is in us today. If he's in us, he's in us through that all-sufficient, all-powerful word. And by that word and through that word, he produces within us a hope that is a glorious hope. A hope that no one can take away from us. We can forfeit it. We can abandon it. We can give it up. But no one can take that hope away from us. Not arbitrarily. And that ties in with the next statement from the psalmist, depart from me, you who would take my hope from me if I would allow you to do so, get away from me. Depart from me, verse 115, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Here's a statement that recognizes, reminds us of the absolute need to shun, to flee from, and not flirt with anything that could destroy our hope, our faith, our salvation. Depart from me, you evildoers. This morning we talked about that formula in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. Flee these things, Paul said to Timothy. Elsewhere he told him to flee youthful lust. He didn't say flirt with youthful lust. He said flee youthful lust. Lust. We're not to flirt with sin. We're not to, to play with it, so to speak, and see how close we can get to it without falling into it. The attitude should be, depart from me, you evildoers. Get away from me because I am determined, the psalmist says, to keep the commandments of my God. It's very reminiscent of the temptation that Jesus faced, the temptation that is recorded there for us as he after his baptism, went into the wilderness, was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and there for 40 days the devil tempted him. And in Matthew 4 and verse 10, Jesus said to the devil, Away with you, Satan. Away with you. When Peter on one occasion tried to tell the Lord that he was not going to have to die for, for the sins of mankind, what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Get away from me. Satan was trying to use Peter. And the Lord said, get away from me. And that's exactly what we need to do in the world in which we live. Be constantly aware of those who would rob us of our hope, rob us of our faith, ultimately rob us of our salvation. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits, as the New King James says, as Paul writes, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Well, how can we keep evildoers away from us? How can we successfully do it? We can keep evil away by keeping the commandments of our God 
firmly entrenched in our hearts and minds. You know, Solomon wished near the end of his life, I know, that he had done that all of his life, but he didn't, did he? Near the end of his life, he said, Now hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Some translations read the whole duty of man. It's literally the whole of man, man's whole. This is man's all. This is everything we are about while we live upon this earth is to keep the commandments of God. Solomon went through a lot, sacrificed a lot, turned his back upon the Lord, and evil companions were largely responsible for it, weren't they? Who were those evil companions in Solomon's case? His wives who led him astray. 1 Kings 11, beginning at verse 1, you can read about that. His many wives led him into idolatrous practices. Oh, how much better off he would have been had he said, Depart from me, you evildoers. I'm not going to enter into a relationship with you that is going to keep me from serving God. We mentioned this morning that a lady who was viewing the television program out of Little Rock, Arkansas, had, had called to ask for prayers. And as I was preparing these thoughts tonight, I couldn't help but think about her because at this point when you talk about those who keep us from doing the will of God, that's exactly what she expressed in the message she left in asking for prayers. That she had entered into a relationship where the influence of that individual had said, in effect, you're not going to have me and the church, and so she gave up the church for a period of time. She has now indicated that she has seen the error of her ways and asked for our prayers. But it's simply another example of how evil company corrupts good habits and how we can make choices. We can make choices to, to treasure or to hang on to relationships that can cost us the most important and precious relationship that we could ever have or ever hope to have, and that's our relationship with the God of heaven. And then the psalmist declares, Uphold me, further please, uphold me according to your word, that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. If we'll maintain our hope, we won't ever be ashamed of it. Because our hope is built, as the song declares, on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Faith in his blood and righteousness on our part will keep our hope firm and steadfast. And it all gets us back to the word of God, just as the psalmist tells us here. Uphold me according to your word. Don't let me be ashamed of my hope. Hope in the word. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The Hebrews writer tells us in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance. Substance means that which stands under our hope. It's the foundation of our hope. Faith is the foundation 
of our hope. But how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17, therefore hope comes from the Word as well. Hope is tied to the Word. And as we sang in another of the songs before our worship tonight, some build their hopes on the ever-drifting sands. Some are building on the ever-drifting sand of sectarian creeds and secular pursuits. The Christian's hope is built upon Scripture. Scripture, the Word of God. The Word of God. Uphold me, and then a very similar thought is expressed in the next verse by the psalmist, hold me up. It's akin, closely akin to the previous one. Prop me up, support me, and I shall be safe. And here's the commitment he makes, and I shall observe your statutes continually. You know, the very fact, again, that the psalmist here cries for God to hold him up indicates the possibility, does it not, of falling. Just as we talked about this morning. In First Timothy, Paul, on two occasions, says, lay hold on eternal life. If we're to lay hold on something, that doesn't mean, that can't mean we already have it in such a way that we can't lose it. It cannot mean that we're saved, and once that we're saved, we're always saved, and that nothing we do can change that. Obviously, if we need to be held up, if we need to lay hold on eternal life, then there's the distinct possibility that we could fail to lay hold on eternal life. If the psalmist cries to God, hold me up and I shall be safe, there's the distinct possibility of his falling. And the need that he felt for God to strengthen him, to help him in the trials and the temptations that he faced in his life, just as we need God to help us, to strengthen us through his word. Because there is the very real possibility of falling. And it is certainly the case that God does not approve of everything and everyone. And the next verse makes that abundantly clear. As the psalmist tells us, you reject all those who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. You reject all those who stray from what? Their feelings. No, you reject all those who stray from your statutes, your word. Again, as we say, the psalmist wrote at a time when a different law was in effect, the law of Moses, but the principle nonetheless applies to us. God still rejects all those who stray from his statutes. The key question is, where do I find those statutes today? I don't find them in the law of Moses. That law served its purpose, was nailed to the cross, taken out of the way, Colossians 2.14, fulfilled perfectly by the sinless Son of God who took it out of the way and ushered in a new covenant, his covenant, his last will and testament, and those are the statutes to which I must be faithful Otherwise, I will be rejected. Like dross, the next verse tells us. You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. That which is not valuable as the precious metal is separated from that which is simply dross. In that process, the dross is worth nothing. It is laid aside, put away. All the wicked of the earth tragically, will ultimately, unless they turn from their wickedness, be put away like dross. And here he comes back to the word. 
Because that is the case, because you will reject those who reject your statutes, because you will put away all the wicked of the earth like dross, I'm going to continue to love and obey your testimonies, your statutes, because I do not wish to be put away. And the final verse ties in with these two we've seen previously. And it's a verse that depicts the awesome judgment of God and the thought that the psalmist has about the severity of God upon the wicked. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. He doesn't say I'm afraid of God and that I serve God out of fear and dread. That's not what he's saying. The context here is a context of God judging the wicked. And the thought of that judgment, the thought of that power to punish, the thought of that awesomeness of the God of heaven brings the psalmist, as it were, to his knees, trembling. Here is an expression of awe and respect for the power and the majesty of of God. You remember how angelic appearances that we read about in both the Old and the New Testaments always produced reverential fear and trembling in those to whom uh, those angels appeared. There was a respect, a reverence, a trembling there that I believe is being depicted here by the psalmist as he contemplates the awesome judgment of God on the wicked. I think it's very much like what what we read about in Acts 24 concerning Felix. You remember him? In Acts 24, 24 and 25, and after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul. Paul was down now at Caesarea being held and waiting now. He would ultimately make his appeal to go to Rome. But Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ, concerning Christianity. Now, as he reasoned, Paul, that is, about righteousness, self-control, and what? And the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. He was terrified. And he answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. I believe that's what we're reading about right here in Psalm 119, 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you at the thought of what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, when God, through Christ, judges mankind. The judgments that will be issued against the wicked there produces a trembling and a fear. But in the case of the psalmist versus the case of Felix, Felix never responded, never acted upon that fear, dread, never had that fear turn to the joy that the psalmist experienced as a follower of God and Christ. The contrast between Felix and, and the psalmist is truly a contrast. But the contemplation of the judgment of God should sober the thinking even of the righteous and help us to remember that if we are living as we should, 
and following God, that we must determine never to turn from that faithfulness. Because what awaits us then is the kind of judgment that produces a trembling and fear about which the psalmist writes here. Better, remember Peter said, never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn your back upon the holy commandment once delivered. It's like the dog turning to its own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Never, it better never to have heard in the first place than to turn your back upon it. That too is a reminder of the justice of God and the meeting out of that justice when the Lord comes again. But thanks be to God, the faithful do not have to live in fear, but in an anticipation of his coming. And as we continue to walk in the light as he is in the light, as we avail ourselves of the means by which we're continually cleansed of the sins that we inevitably commit despite our best efforts, that means being confession of those sins and a continued walk in the light, we can live in anticipation and hope, as the psalmist has depicted in this segment of the psalm, and not in dread and terror. Where are you tonight? Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. That's what this last verse really reminds us of, doesn't it? The severity of God. And Paul, in Romans eleven twenty two in that passage, wanted us, in this the Christian dispensation, to behold, to consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, severity, Paul says. But toward you, writing to Christians, goodness if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also shall be cut off. And the thought of being cut off should cause us to fear and tremble and produce within us not only a determination to continue to do right, but a gratitude for the opportunity to be where we are if we're living faithful Christian lives tonight. But if that's not where you are tonight, it can be. If you're willing to make the change that the scripture tells you is necessary in order to become a Christian or to come home to your first love as a wayward child. To believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is the first step in becoming a child of God. But it doesn't end there. That faith must lead you to repent of your sins, to confess Jesus to be the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, Jesus said. That makes it abundantly clear that belief is essential. But Luke thirteen three, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, makes it abundantly clear that faith alone cannot save you. You've got to believe and then repent. But Jesus said, confess me and I'll confess you before the Father, Matthew ten thirty two. And he also added, If you really have faith, you will not hesitate to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. For he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, 16. And they are cleansed by the blood in that watery grave. We rise to walk in newness of life. And if you have discontinued that walk in newness of life as one who once began it, We plead with you to come home in repentance, confession of wrong that's been done in a way that's brought reproach upon the church so that your influence, most importantly your precious soul, can be restored to the Lord.
into his kingdom, the church. As we stand to sing, we invite you to come.